Welcome to Across the States, the premier state policy podcast. I'm your host, Dan Reynolds. Today we have a full cast here in ALEC headquarters. Our guest is Bob Grayboys, who is the Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, really glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Thank you. We also have three ALEC policy experts. Starting on my left, we have Jonathan Howenchild, the ALEC Director of the Communications and Technology Task Force. Hello. And we also have the dynamic duo of Brooklyn Roberts and Anna Parsons. Anna Parsons is the policy coordinator within the Center for Innovation at ALEC, and Brooklyn Roberts is the ALEC Director of the Health and Human Services Task Force. Thank you both for sitting down with me today. Thanks. I like the dynamic duo. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, good name. We'll have to keep that going. Today we're talking about how tech is affecting healthcare. It seems like every day you hear about a new invention or initiative that's disrupting the status quo, which creates so many new opportunities for economic prosperity and, frankly, for an increase in individual liberty. Today, we're going to get into a deep dive discussion of what that means for individuals, for state legislators, and for other policy shapers when it comes to healthcare. Brooklyn, what's it like for tech and healthcare today in America? Well, it's, I mean, it's changing so much. It seems like there's an app for everything now from, um, you know, measuring your heart rate to monitoring your sleep cycle. Um, so it, it, you're able to share so much more information with your physician now, um, and it's so much more convenient for everyone. Um, Bob, I know you've recently had uh, a, kind of an experience where you were able to oh, yeah. share, um, share some information with your doctor <coughs> from a device you have on your phone. Well, absolutely. So I unfortunately missed out on uh, making it down to Alec to speak. Uh, and thanks for allowing me to do this as kind of a makeup test. Um, I was I had the calmest day imaginable. I, I, I've had for about three and a half years a slight occasional heart condition. Um, so anyway, I was had the calmest imaginable day, went out to Dulles, Sat around, had some lunch, strolled a bit, got on the airplane. I don't mind airplanes. And as I'm sitting there waiting for the doors to close, my heartbeat went from its usual 55 beats a minute to about 148. And um, and I decided maybe I shouldn't be on this airplane, and I hopped off. There's actually the picture of... Uh, in real time from what happened that day. Oh, wow. So, We're seeing a, a graph that spikes up really rapidly. Pretty mm-hmm. obvious, actually, mm-hmm. if you're an app user for that. What is that app, Bob? Uh, this is just Apple Health. Oh, wow. um, so yeah. it's their their little heart thing on there. So anyway, I decided maybe I don't actually need to go to Austin today. So I hopped off the plane. And the airline was very nice, and they said, do you mind if we bring some medics over and take a look at you? I said, no, I'm happy to. I think I'm fine. But So they brought it over and wired me up at the airport. And meanwhile, I had this device on my phone, which uh, I've had for about three and a half years, which will do an electrocardiogram in 30 seconds and analyze it. And I've also got an equivalent device on my Apple Watch, which will do the same thing. So anyway, they were testing me with this very expensive device, and I was sitting there saying, okay, the next one is going to say that I'm at 103 beats and blah, 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 and I was telling them what their device was going to say. So anyway, I got got home. I was, an hour later, I was fine, and I've been fine ever since. And I wanted to tell my cardiologist just what happened. I said, so here, here it is. 
But rather than me sitting on the phone going blah, 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 I just, I made up a little document. I downloaded, made some PDFs from this, from, uh, from the phone, from my watch, and the medics gave me the first strip they did and the last strip, and I put it all into a nice document, sent it to her with all the timestamps, and she didn't really have to ask me anything. She could look through it and say, okay, you didn't have any arrhythmia, you didn't have this. No, nope, no, nope, it just got fast, and I don't know why. So anyway, but it was great. And the thing is, nothing that I did, I guess I'm a little bit of the patient on the frontier that she probably doesn't get many of these from patients. But I imagine in the near future, most everybody will have this capability. It shouldn't just be for someone who happens to be a kind of a, a, a tech lover and healthcare scholar. Uh, everybody should ultimately be able to say, doctor, this is what happened, Blanc, and send it to them. Yeah. Real-time feedback that doctors can definitely utilize. Mm -hmm. so and, and since then, I'll have to say, so you mentioned real-time. So she wanted to ch just check me out and see why is, does this happen often or whatever. So um, over here, I have a little monitor here that's just about the size of a, a you little... You know, it's funny. If you tap on that, I think we can actually hear it with the yes, mic. Here. Yes, you can. Yeah. You can... Yeah, there it is. <laughs> and they're probably hearing it there. So this thing is continually feeding this to, I don't know, some people sitting in front of consoles I, somewhere in the world. I have no idea whether it's <laughs> in the U.S. or whether it's overseas. I kind of like it be overseas since I'm kind of a pro-trade guy, and I think that's that's kind of cool. Uh, but anyway, some so if this says something's weird – something weird is happening to my heart, it will ping somebody in that office. They'll look at the console. They'll decide whether it matters. And if it does matter, they will then ping the doctor who then can ping me and all in split seconds. So it's, it's just great. Not everyone needs it, but uh, in this case, she wants to know how come I occasionally speed up. So I'm sort of on the leading edge of this. Um, I'm kind of happy to say I'm glad I can do it, but I'd really be happier in a world where Everybody has these capabilities. Yeah, so there's a great comparison here between you using your Apple Watch, which is something that uh, a lot of people have. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very pervasive today in, uh, in society. Um, just as a comparison, how long does it take for uh, an EKG test on your Apple Watch and then the traditional EKG test that you were saying you were beating uh, the medical professionals? What are those timetables like? Well, the, the phone here... Uh, so I've got a device on the back of my cell phone. It's called an Alive Core. They're running TV commercials for it now. Uh, it takes 30 seconds. The Apple Watch takes 30 seconds. Uh, oh, I don't know. The uh, I think the uh, the big one. You know, I don't know if it's it is analyzing me or whether it's printing it out so that the medics can sit there and read it with their intuition, with their brains. But it doesn't take that long. Uh, but in 30 seconds, I can get a pretty definitive answer. And on a couple of occasions, this has kept me from going to the ER when it turns out I didn't need to. So i say two times at least. That probably saved American uh, health care $10,000. And I always tell people to say thank you. So, so Brooklyn, uh, what do you see across the states? What's going on with new you know, creative disruption type technologies like this? What does that mean for state health care and state policy around it? Um, I mean, I think that they're always looking for ways to save money, uh, especially with state Medicaid programs. Um, they're going, you know, a lot of states are, are more than 30% of their state budgets. Um, 
and the growth in spending in Medicaid has been huge over since what 2013 I believe um, so it, using technology to to reform uh, not just for the patient but um, to save money uh, for the state I think is is where where everybody's looking to yeah. um, and we talked a little bit about that mm-hmm. um, before you know in terms of how it not it's not just more convenient for patients but it, it can save a lot of money too well and I would say they ought to be trying to save money but they don't always actually try in the case uh, you know technology is a broad term it can it can be devices it can also be organizational structures and one of the more interesting organizational structure changes in medicine is direct primary care which is uh, I, I, Basically, you pay once a month, and then it's like a subscription pro- service. Hmm? It's like a subscription. Service. Yes, this is yeah, exactly. Uh, you pay maybe sixty dollars a month, and then you see the doctor all you want, uh, either in person, and usually for extensive hours a day, sometimes twenty four seven, or you can email, you can phone, or you can Skype. You can uh, you can reach your doctor in a number of ways. Uh, a particular entrepreneur, probably the top DPC entrepreneur in the country, is a fellow by the name of Rushika Fernanda Pule up in New England. And he went to a couple of states up there and said, I got a deal for you. You have a lot of undocumented immigrants and they cost and they cost you a lot of money. They they can't you can't give them Medicaid, they can't get on standard insurance. So they go to the emergency room and and you end up paying a fortune uh, for them. I will open clinics all over the place, and I will charge you $1 per day per person. So for $365, I will cover a person's uh, primary care for a full year. And the states were, wow, that would save us a lot of money. I said, but you know what? If we do that, we're going to start treating you as an insurer and uh, regulate you accordingly. And he said, well, that will put me out of business. Um, and so nothing came of it. Uh, so yes, they think about money, but not always, not as much as they should. Why do you think America is lagging behind so many foreign countries, um, in terms of adopting technology with regard to healthcare? I don't think we are actually. I think America is doing quite well in it. We're lagging behind where we could be. Uh, I mean, there, there are a few examples. So there's some odd cases out there. There are a couple of countries in Africa, Rwanda and Ghana, which have adopted unmanned aerial vehicles, drones to carry blood and drugs and other medical supplies to from urban centers to remote clinics. And it's important there because they have bad roads. It takes hours and hours to get it. If you have a mother who is hemorrhaging after childbirth and you need blood there quickly, a drone can get it there in 15 minutes or half an hour. So I'm writing a paper now, co-authored with an OBG, a physician, who does in fact uh, deliver babies and sees those emergencies. And the third co-author uh, was a principal figure in drone technology at the Pentagon previously. And the the third one, uh, John has actually tempered my expectations and said, so here are the problems with doing drones in a country like the United States with its crowded airspace. Uh, it's easier in Rwanda where there's not much flying around and there aren't many tall buildings and 
and so you can do it pretty easily. So I've gained a, an appreciation for you know, the regulations at the Federal Aviation Administration, which is taking it a bit slowly, but uh, he's persuaded me with, with pretty good reasons. But in most things, we're, we're ahead of the curve on technology. We're, uh, it's often noted, and, and I have some caveats on, on this statement, but it's often said that America, when we deliver care for a given patient, given symptoms, given illness, whatever, we spend less, not monetarily, but in terms of hours uh, of physician time. We use fewer hours of doctor time, fewer days in the hospital, fewer everything. The one thing we spend more on is technology. So, no, I think we're way ahead of most places in technology. That said, we could be a whole lot better than we are. Since you brought uh, more technology information into this, one big question I think that's out there right now is how do all these apps affect sharing big data and some of the security and privacy concerns with that versus uh, maybe the benefits that you can receive? Yeah, uh, privacy is a big concern in it. Now, I'm not a computer guy. I mean, I'm I'm very comfortable with technology, but I'm not a programmer. I don't do computer security, whatever. So I sort of rely on what people in the field tell me. Um, they're taking considerable precautions uh, to guarantee privacy, or let's say to give a high degree of privacy. You can't guarantee it. You can't do 100%. Uh, and to some extent... Even today, without adopting all these things, privacy is much more a thing of the past than it has been. Uh, you know, we all know we're all carrying these cell phones and we're providing strangers all over the world with really intimate details of what you're doing in life and where you go in the day and what you read and what you eat and what you think and what you care about. So part of it is sort of a psychological adjustment to the fact that we're in a world where we have surrendered a good deal of privacy. I don't want to surrender more than we have to. So by all means, there's a huge role for data security and privacy experts in this field. Uh, But you certainly can do massive amounts of good with the big data that's out there. So Jonathan, you are without a doubt, the data and privacy security expert at the table right now. So what are your thoughts on uh, that question and you know, maybe some growing concerns around privacy with, uh, with Apple Watches and other EKG uh, technologies? It's actually a good question that a lot of people are, are wrestling with right now, largely because it's, you have the concerns for general privacy with what we're learning about with like Google, Apple, other companies. But when you're talking healthcare and medical devices, you're also probably implicating HIPAA. Mm. And so there's a, you know, a law from 1996 that didn't contemplate the explosion of the internet, the explosion of devices and internet created devices that in many respects is still controlling a lot of what we can do with data. And it really kind of goes to another question of what are a lot, the obstacles that we face to innovation especially in the healthcare field, not the insurance, but the device, drug, uh, wearable technology. What are the obstacles that we're facing due to fact the fact that many of these laws and regulatory regimes were created back in the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s? Yeah. So, or 1920s. Yeah, or 1920s. <laughs> Telecommunications Act. 
So what do state legislators need to know on this issue? I mean, if they're faced with maybe a draconian overreaching bill in, a, in their legislature or if they're looking to set up the, you know, the playing field to be more open for more EKG technologies, what's a, you know, what are good policies that state legislators can start wrapping their heads around for this? Right. There, there is a long list of regulations that, uh, that state, state legislatures, laws, regulations, and customs uh, that states have put into place, uh, state legislators, state regulators, state medical boards, uh, which are ostensibly private entities, but which have sort of quasi-governmental powers, medical societies and such. Uh, there is, I don't know, there's a sort of a combination of fear and protectionism out there. So let me shift for a moment over to the field of telehealth. So delivering care by a laptop, through a cell phone, through a tablet. And lots of state legislators have been hesitant about really allowing people to take advantage of it. It's life-saving technology. I've told a story that uh, my mother, when she was 92, was having a FaceTime conversation with uh, her grandson, who's a doctor. And in the course of the conversation, he picked up on the fact you know, she, she had a little complaint, medical complaint. She was going to see a doctor the next week. And in observing her through the screen, he realized she was at death's door and got her to a hospital immediately that night and was diagnosed, as he thought, with, a, um, with sepsis, uh, that she was uh, in toxic shock and didn't even realize she was that sick. And I've said since then that you shouldn't have to have a grandson who's a doctor in order to enjoy that sort of life-saving technology. Well, a lot of states make it very difficult for that. It's gotten better. Some of the, uh, some of the states that were most problematic have really loosened up and allowed more. Part of it is we have a conflict between federalism, which I support heartily, uh, but also... I don't know, the interstate commerce clause. So if we say a doctor in New York cannot treat you through through your uh, iPad in Virginia, uh, am I happy about that because Virginia is exerting its state sovereignty or am I sad because it's really restricting um, trade across state lines? It's And, and it's, it's... And restricting individual freedom from that sense. Restricting yeah, restricting freedom, absolutely. We are in an early period. You know, we're all, again, for whatever privacy concerns you have about what a, an Apple Watch can do and, and you put your, you know, I, I take my EKGs a couple times a day probably, and somebody out there has them. Uh, when, I, when I first developed this, I had one episode of heart arrhythmia, and I thought, okay, I don't really want to tell people about it, and I just didn't keep it to myself. And then I thought, why bother? You know, there are all these people in Silicon Valley who already know I've got the thing. Yeah, so, uh, so why don't I just tell the world and I'll be able to pump out a whole lot of articles and research papers on it. So I figured, why do I need to be private about that? Uh, and so it's, it's actually kind of liberating to say, I don't care. There are obviously situations. If you're undergoing psychiatric care, you probably don't want the whole world to know about it. You know, in the case of telehealth, there's a legitimate fear on the part of some legislators, regulators, and such that, well, I don't know. I didn't learn about this in med school 30 years ago, and so I'm not sure how comfortable I am with it. And they're probably being excessively risk-averse, but I do understand 
a concern. It's a new technology, and, and they want to be sure that it's safe and effective and useful. But there's also a, a sort of a protectionist aspect that, oh, and by the way, if I keep the New York doctor out of Virginia through the iPad, that's less competition for me. So it's it's sort of a, a little bit of conflict of interest there along with legitimate altruistic motives. And it's sort of hard to separate the two. When it comes to, to the data, it's going to take time to sort out what privacy means, what privacy we can enjoy, and whether it's already the horse is already out of the barn. Mm, yeah. So to that point, uh, Jonathan, Bob brought up a really good point about people who are maybe undergoing psychiatric care. And you brought up HIPAA earlier and the protections that that includes for health information for individuals. You know, what are the red flags and what are maybe things that legislators need to be aware of in that you know, soup, let's say, of, of environment there that there's this combination between, you know, we want to protect individual privacy, but we also have these great uh, new innovative technologies that writ large with, let's say, big data can actually save someone's life as, you know, with Bob. I mean, you had a heart uh, arrhythmia spike and that the EKG technology helped save his life, but I, I think I can go so far to say. I would say in one sense, HIPAA is very liberating for states because they don't have to overly concern themselves with the health information and privacy and portability. They can instead focus on what that means for their state and their jurisdiction. Uh, so the federal law is going to control no matter what. And there's nothing a state legislature can do about that specific law. What it does allow them to do is perhaps start investigating some of the benefits of sharing big data, of starting to pressure the federal government and Congress to change the law, to update it to modern time, to recognize that individual devices, you know, through apps uh, that you wear can provide benefits and starting to gather the data, if you will, necessary to engage in the process of updating the law. Um, and it, it, it's, it's really just a, a liberating thing. But it, really just a question, uh, when you talk about federalism, one of the big obstacles that at least I've seen in my research is the FDA. Oh, absolutely. Uh, how do you tell the FDA, if you will, or work with the FDA to allow these innovations? And how do you work with them to maybe work with the states to start either assisting or actually getting out of the way of a lot of these innovations. So a couple of years ago, three of us at Mercatus wrote a paper on the FDA. One of the authors had spent 27 years at the FDA, and he was probably the most negative of us. Uh, I think he sort of considers the agency to be irredeemable, that ultimately the whole regulatory structure of the FDA, which was designed in the very early 20th century, uh, that it's really going to have to be scrapped and rebuilt. It's full of good people, uh, so I don't mean to disparage the people who are there, but I think the whole is less than the sum of the parts. I mean, there are there are alternative models. So, if you want to approve a medical device like this thing that I've these these devices that I've been showing around the table here, you have to go to the FDA. You have to pay a huge amount to test them. Uh, and after quite a number of years, 
maybe you'll get approved and maybe you won't. And sometimes it's a very arbitrary process. Uh, there's, uh, we had a fellow briefly associated with Mercatus who uh, built a couple of companies and they were both bankrupted because the FDA kept changing the rules in the middle of the approval process. And it just eventually both of the things were approved, but by then the companies were broke and so he uh, and nothing so nothing happened. You can you can find alternative interesting models. One of them that interests me that we wrote about in that paper is that and I'm not usually prone to praising the European Union, but in this in this one just this one time, Bob. Just, just this, this one time. They have a very interesting alternative mechanism for approving devices. Uh, not, I don't think drugs are the same, but they do devices this way. Rather than having a single agency like the FDA do the approvals for the EU, they have a set, a constellation of what are called notified bodies. These are private entities. The closest thing I can think of in this country is underwriters laboratories, which certifies if you look at a, an electric lamp that you have it probably has a, a ul symbol in it that says this has been certified as safe this is not likely to burn your house down uh, and it was as the name implies it was really started by the insurance industry which wanted safe things in people's houses so they weren't always paying out for burned down houses europe essentially does that with multiple agencies to approve devices so that if you have a particular, if you've invented a medical device, you want to market it, you look around at all the different notified bodies and you pick the one that you think is the best fit for your device in terms of their expertise, in terms of their competence, in terms of the speed with which they get their reviews done. The FDA has a very one-sided set of incentives. What they want to do above all is to avoid releasing something that kills or hurts somebody. And if that means dragging you out for 15 years or maybe never approving your device just because, gee, there's a chance that this might do something to somebody somewhere, well, that's where a lot of ideas get squelched. Uh, in the European system, in the EU system for devices, you still have that motive. You don't want to be the notified body that, uh, that approves a device that kills a bunch of people because you will then suffer just as an FDA person would. But there's a flip side motive pushing in the opposite direction, which is you also don't want to be the notified body that takes 15 years to approve things because people will stop coming to you. They'll go to one of your competitors. And under their rules, once one of these agencies says thumbs up your device is approved all the rest by reciprocity have to go along and so and so you have private entities competing yeah i was just gonna say it really sounds like a competitive model which is very interesting i yeah. never thought about that and what i what occurred to me in reading it was it almost exactly mimics a 250 year old mechanism which is maritime insurance in the mid-1700s, uh, people realized you couldn't really have national regulation of shipping because if you said, well, we, we're going to 
put big restrictions for safety reasons or other reasons on your ships. They would simply say, well, you know what? We're not flying your flag anymore. We'll go across the channel and fly that flag. And, uh, and so it, it, they, the industries, the insurance, the very early insurance industry realized we can't really base it on one country's regulation. So what they did was, um, this is actually kind of the origin of Lloyd's of London in the coffee houses of London in the 1700s. They began setting up these independent agencies, essentially insurers, who hired people who were specialists to certify that your ship was safe and seaworthy and 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 worthy of covering. And so the the in, the early insurance industry really built this certification thing. And it's been in use for 250 years, and sailing on the high seas is quite safe. We've become very wealthy uh, people compared to our ancestors 250 years ago because shipping became feasible. And essentially, the EU has copied this when it comes to medical devices. Uh, So, Bob, I want to bring this back to something that you said earlier in the conversation, which is that telehealth lowers costs. And you mentioned a number of regulations that... Sure. So you mentioned a number of regulations that states have imposed. Um, And one of the biggest questions is parity laws and whether or not um, you should pay the same for a telehealth interaction as an in-person doctor visit or if it should be reimbursed at a different rate. And that also raises the question of what private insurers should be um, uh, caused to pay. What are your thoughts on parity laws? Sure. So two colleagues and I um, that OBG doctor and a, uh, a Dartmouth researcher and I produced something at Mercatus called HOPE, H-O-A-P, the Healthcare Openness and Access Project. Essentially, it, you, if, if we wanted, we could have called it Healthcare Freedom in the States. We just decided to give it a different name. And one of the variables in it was, does Medicaid pay parity for telemedicine? And we in general, treated it as a positive in there, but we explicitly said, but we're not entirely comfortable with that because one of the big advantages of telehealth can be lower costs. And if you're requiring them to charge the same thing an in-person doctor charges, you are thereby removing one of the real potential advantages of telemedicine. So we were we sort of said we're happy in these cases because it means at least the state is paying for telemedicine through Medicaid. But we're not necessarily thrilled with the fact that they're requiring it to be at parity. If if you asked me, I would probably say it it might be nice if they said the state will pay whatever the charge is up to parity, but allow telemedicine to charge less than that because that's one of the big advantages that they have. And and if they're trying to attract customers, trying to attract patients, cost is one of the big magnets for them. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think we're coming a little bit to our the end of our segment today. We've had a, a really great conversation. Bob, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for sitting down with me. But before we close out, I do want to give you know, a moment if there's anything else you guys want to plug, uh, Brooklyn or Jonathan, exciting new events coming up or uh, new things just for legislators to keep in mind. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, mention? Not that I can think of. Yeah, well... That's why we covered it all in this podcast, obviously. Well, again, I'm uh, Dan Reynolds, your host here of Across the States. Brooklyn, Anna, Jonathan, Bob, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. 
Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.